Um, a few things. So basically, like whenever I start doing a Chumash thing anywhere, so I like try to make sure everyone's on the same planet, same wavelength. And it's my first time really doing this here. And I mean, you guys kind of know some of my, what I do, but like the the main background thing, just in terms of how to think about this, is that I'm not coming to this as a partial shear. This is not. A, it's not. First of all, I don't even call this a shear. This is like just a figuring out what's going on in the Chumash. And the reason why I say it's not a part, so A, I don't view it as a shear because it's more of like a trying to put stuff together process. And like I have done, I've done this a lot of times and a lot of years. So like I'm coming, I'm not just coming to like figure it out from scratch with you guys now, but there's a lot of sort of showing how this is coming together and how the text operates. So that's why I don't call it a shear. You can call it more like a talk or a learning together, but like with some kind of built-in process. But in general, whenever thinking about like this book, so that's also why I don't call it a parsha, whatever we want to call it, talk or whatever, because the problem is that the whole structure of parsha and doing parsha every week is like it's a takana derabanan from, you know, it's very old. And the purpose of it was that basically people are constantly obviously going through the Chumash and the Chumash is kind of set up, organized according to different weeks because then we have the different themes that are emphasized different time periods. But of course, you also realize that like every single theme in the Chumash applies to every single time period and it's very easy to that's why you always have all these Torahs that connect things even when it doesn't seem like it's really you know the right time period or whatever it's not hard to do that because the whole Chumash always works that way and so the whole Parsha structure is like fundamentally just really to sort of have this very loose way of getting us into a pattern of learning the Chumash repeatedly and it's trying to finish it every year and like but it's very loose and so when you start to realize that so it kind of gets rid of this idea that you have to read the Chumash in terms of Parsha and think about it in terms of Dvar Torahs which is like a disease in terms of actually learning the Torah Shabbat like it's a real problem. Like learning, learning the actual Torah is very like underdone, underemphasized in yeshivas, in shuls, in communities. There's a lot of emphasis on learning Gemara, obviously, but like just doing it. A lot of I would argue a lot of that is because of this framework of Parsha that not only again it's from Chazal, it's from the Gemara, but like, but like the idea that like you should actually just focus on that and then make that into like your framework of how you relate to the Chumash, I think really uh, discredits the whole book. So the way to think about it is like, well, first of all, whenever you're reading it, you should read it in terms of stories and like in terms of sections. I should know it because not everything is a story, although you could probably argue that everything is a story in some way. What that means is like if you're looking at Parsha's Vayishlach, so like I, I, I'd never learned the Chumash as a Parsha. I read it as, as stories and as paragraphs. And if you just kind of look at it, like the first story, the first paragraph is pretty long. You know, it goes all the way until here. And it's the story of Yaakov and Esau meeting after, you know, Yaakov was far away for a long time. You have this little short thing here where Yaakov then tries to sort of settle down outside of where Shechem lives. Unclear where that is. Like it says, it's um, it's called Shalem, maybe is the name of, the, is the, name of the place. Um, and then you have the Dina story. And then you have these like really, really whacked out things, just very strange stories about, um, well, first you have this, actually, first you have the um, story of, of, um, of them going back to Basel to sort of finish the story of what happened in the beginning of Parsha Vayete, that they were supposed to supposed to go there and uh, Yaakov was supposed to come back and then basically do this thing in, in Betel and then you have this other story about um, Hashem naming Yaakov Yisrael and then you have the story of Rachel dying and you have a couple other weird things there after that and then you have this long uh, um, genealogy of Esav and then you have this, this these kings that also ruled in the area where Esav was supposed to be so like each of those things is like its own separate story and when you kind of read them like that and think about them in terms of the story paragraph and structure that allows you to really start to think about them in a clear way as opposed to sort of like well it's Parsha it's Tvar Torah it's reading a Pasuk reading another Pasuk and instead you're kind of trying to read the stories so that's just like a general background of how to think about like learning the Chumash and that's really what this is for it's like I want to we're going to do it and whenever we do we're going to do it according to whenever we do we're going to do it according to um, 
according to Parsha, because that's what we're doing that week. But like when you learn it, so to understand that's how to sort of think about it, that's how this context is going to be thinking about it. And I also just want to say as a next part to that, which is like, this is like a larger message just for everybody in general. Like this is a huge problem that we're not reading this. Like or that, like it's uh, it's up there with not learning Torah in general enough. But in order to actually learn this carefully and deeply, just like with anything, there's a reason why we say in the Gemara that the Torah is like your other wife. It's because without there being the whole the whole idea of how husband and wife works is a concept and construct of kedushin and nesuin and the ksuva, which is like a financial obligation that basically, in order to separate that, you have to pay a huge amount of money. And it's not just like this. We have like a one night stand, and then we can just get divorced, there's like a lot of consequences to it, it drives two people to be what's called panim el panim, which basically is like you have to really be face to face with each other, and that's an obligation construct, it's like we are, we're never, we're not just going to like do this in a shallow, chill way, because well I could always just leave, I could always just, you know, put this down and go do something else, so with husband and wife there's no putting it down, it's like you're always going to have to deal face to face in that way, and that's why the Torah is also called your other wife, because it needs to be viewed as like, I have to face this, I have to take it seriously, I have to pay attention to it in a real way, as opposed to like just kind of like this fly-by-night, like in a random way. And so that's like, again, the same thing. It's like when you're reading this, reading it as a story is the first level of doing that because you're taking it seriously. It's like this this story is telling us something. It's telling a story, and I have to understand what the story is. Then it's not just like in a chill, shallow way, like, okay, we'll read the story, it's a nice story. It's like this story is about something, and there's a very, very profound depth to what it is, and you can't discover profound depth in your wife if you're not committed to her in that way. You can't discover the profound depth in the Torah if you're not committed to it in that way. And the only way to be committed to it in that way is to constantly live as if you are in that kind of relationship with it. And so that means there's like, you know, there's a lot of um, attempts to constantly express that, to constantly engage with it, constantly try to learn it. And of course we all have jobs and whatever, but like there needs to be like time that is really clearly delineated to do that. And if we don't have that, then we can't actually get to that place. So that's just like a very important plug for like actually learning Chumash in, the, in, in a real way. Can it make sense? This is all pretty good so far. Obviously it makes sense. And this is more so than just like, you know, typical Shnayim for a... Oh, very much. No, I'm saying just in general, like when you're saying about learning about reading the text, obviously yeah. it goes beyond yeah, I'll say one comment about Shnayim Mikra just because people do know about Shnayim Mikra. Shnayim Mikra is a big problem. If you actually read the Mishnah Brura and the other postkin that he's quoting about the Halach of Shnayim Mikra, Reish Pehe and Norachayim, so everybody agrees that you have to read the Chumash maybe twice, and then like maybe one of the Mepharshim, Rashi, or Uncleus, or whatever. But it's very, very clear from the Mishnah Bura and the postman that he's quoting, you have to understand what you're reading, and you have to learn it. Like, you, you, you know, it's not like this, what we call like this davening, like where you're just kind of going through it, sort of like, okay, like, well, I did it twice, and then, you know, it's like religious chanting, like you just kind of say it two times. Like, it's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about like, actually, and I dealt with this problem a million times, because I've always had students, friends, people who come to me and be like, by Dish Mikra, isn't that enough? And it's like, well, are you learning? The reason why it's twice is because we figure by the second time you're, well, that you're reading start, it, you'll, <laughs> right, it's a good start. Yeah. But And it could even be all that you do as long as you're, th- like, as long as you're thinking about it. The idea is like, if you're reading a book like Harry Potter, so like, you don't have to do Shnaya Mikra on that, right? You read it one time, you read it one paragraph once, you're like, do I need to read this again? Like, no, you don't, because you've got it. And with the Chumash, so we say, you know what, do it a second time, because that way, in case you missed anything the first time, any layers of depth that are there that you missed the first time, because you've got a lot of layers of depth, depth the first time, any ones that you missed, read it a second time now, and then you'll get some extra things that maybe you would have missed the first time. That's because we assume the text is very layered, and so even though you got so much the first time, get a few extra things the second time on the Chazara that you do. Maybe you should even read it three or four times, but at least two, we'll know you get a good amount of things. 
But if you don't do any depth the first time because you're just reading it like an automaton, then you read it a second time because you're supposed to. I mean, you didn't get anything either either time. So and then you just read Rashi because the mitzvah is to like learn Rashi or so, for some reason or whatever people are doing. Oh, right, cause then, I guess people just don't really understand. Because you don't understand Uncleus and like so just read Rashi. So the idea here is like when you read these words, so there are there are there are things to, to read, like with Harry Potter, like just read it as a story, but understand the story. And like, if if you if you have to read it slower and actually translate the words, which is a very good tactic, by the way, just write out what you think the, every sentence means after you read it a couple of times. And you have to be like, I don't know how to explain the sentence. I don't know where the sentence fits into the story. It doesn't really make so much sense here at all. Why is it even here? And you start to notice those things. That's what we might need to do if we're reading English. If we're more English readers, which is much harder to actually read it at a real level if we're, if, we read, if we're so used to English. So these are like important background framework things to know in terms of how to approach this and how to do what we're going to try to do here. And so basically, I, I, what I would recommend, if we are going to do this every week, I don't know, we'll see what, how this plays out, but like, if we're going to do this every week, so then um, I recommend going through the particular Parsha of that week beforehand and try to get a feel for what it is, trying to notice things. That's the whole thing here. It's like trying to figure out like what's weird about this Parsha, like what's, what stands out, what are themes, like big themes, little themes, like weird nuances, but also big picture nuances. That's like how I would say to think about that. Okay, good, clear. So I want what I sort of just want to show you guys for a little bit, because we really only have like a, maybe a half hour, um, is that the whole first story, okay? There's there's like a lot of there's a lot of interesting sort of pieces that kind of are working here, interacting with each other, and so just to sort of show you a couple of things, just right off the bat. So the the whole first story, if I had to like give it a title, you guys have any idea what the title of the first long paragraph, this this story with Yaakov and Asa, what would be the title for that paragraph, like? all-encompassing theme. A showdown. What? It's like a showdown. A showdown, yeah, means? What is it's a like, showdown exactly? The confrontation. It's a confrontation. So you have two characters. What are they going to be doing? It seems like maybe they might, they might fight. They might not fight. We're not really sure. We see in the end they end up not really fighting. But basically it seems like there's going to be some kind of one versus the other. And so they're kind of meeting to do that. Now, when you actually look at the story, so the thing about these types of stories, I think that when you read them carefully, like I said before, so there are things that are happening that are kind of like changing and evolving in the story. So I don't know if you guys checked out the, the, ya the Yaakov Leia Rachel video from earlier this week, but like there you see a great example of how like the text itself is like the story is changing over time. Like how, how it plays out is unexpected from the text's viewpoint. In other words, like it's not, it seems like it was supposed to be that Leah was the one who had Yaakov, and then like it slowly changes more and more as Rachel and the other two women get involved in the story and derail where the story was going, which is why the Zohar says that Leah was supposed to be Yaakov's actual wife. So same thing is also true here, and that's why another good, great tactic is whenever you're reading these stories, think about it as if, well, you know what's going to happen at the end, but the text doesn't know that. So the text is kind of like unfolding for itself in a certain way. So I just want to show you a couple of things. The characters also. Yeah, the characters for sure don't know, and then the, and which is an important, just a huge important caveat because very often the, the way the stories are taught is as if the characters know, and therefore, like now it's very, um, it's like well this was the plan, this was like their plan all along. But it's you know for example if Yaakov knew that all that was going to work out fine and he wasn't going to get killed and his family killed by his brother, so it wouldn't say that he's terrified in the middle of the story. That's like, that's like a strange thing to write. If he's like, well, I'm terrified, but like it's not gonna really make a difference. That would be very strange. So that's when it says exactly that, right? So um, a couple of things I just wanna sort of show you guys just to sort of um, 
I guess start the ball rolling a little bit, which is, if you look, there's this overarching theme in the story where Yaakov is constantly, um, sub, he's submitting himself to Esav again and again. He keeps calling him Adoni very, very repeatedly. And then he also bows to him many, many times. There's a bunch of Midrashim that focus on that and are kind of like, oh, this is very unhealthy, it's very bad. But, so I just want to show you one interesting progression of how that plays out. So if you look, um, let's see, right in the very beginning. So, by, in, in, so it starts off, he sends Malachim, by Yitzhak Osamle more in the second Pasuk in this story, um, this is what you should tell Esav, my master, so this is, he says, this is, what, this is what you should say to Esav, my master, so said your servant Yaakov, and he starts telling him all this information, I got all this stuff, and I'm telling you all these, all the things that I did well, um, okay. Um, so, so I have a question for you guys. So when you read this, do you think, like, does Yaakov think that Esav is his master? If you read this, this set of lines, what would you say? And can you prove that? I mean, not necessarily. He's saying is what you should say to Asaph. Right. So, so he's sort of he's telling them, right? He's saying, you guys should tell Asaph that I'm his servant, things like that. And if you, could, if you even look a little further down, um, let's see, where is that? Okay, so if you look at Pasuk Zion. So he says, This is when he's sending out all these gifts, all these different groups of animals. He says, um, He tells the first group, When you meet Esav, my brother, and he asks you, Who's all this for? This is for your servant Yaakov. It's a mincha that he sent for my master Esav. The same parak, just, just in the middle of Shani. So look at look at look at the difference. Can you, can you see any, any noticeable differences between this thing that he's talking about here when he says Vayetzavos are shown lemor versus Vayetzavos some lemor and the one that we mentioned first? There's two different Vayetzavos. The first the, the, first, the first one and the second one. Pasuk Yitzayin and Yunchas. Yeah. Um, so any difference between what he what he tells them and what the Torah says and what he tells them to tell Esav? I think there's a very very interesting nuance here. Which is just going to sort of show the whole, like it unlocks a lot of the theme that's going on. So, what does he call Asav in each case? Adoni Asav. The first one he calls him Adoni Asav. So, in the second one he calls him Asavachi, right? Now, if you think about that for a second, like it's a little weird. And it's a little weird in the first one, actually, because in the second one, I could see that it makes a lot of sense. Yaakov is a boss, right? He's he's rich. He has a whole team of people that are literally working his animals to take care of stuff with him, and he's now sending a bunch of them off to bring stuff to his brother Esau. Now, so if you're Yaakov the boss and you're dealing with your own people, so you're going to say, "Well, this is what I want you to tell my brother Esau all these things," and use the language of "I'm your I'm your servant," because he's trying to make sure that Esau is not going to attack him. So he's basically trying to give him all these things to play him and to get him to back off. So that makes a lot of sense. He would call, he'd say to, to, his, to his people that are working for him, this is Ace of my brother, and, you know, go and tell him these things. But in the beginning, that's not what happens. In the beginning, he says, he says, tell Ace of my master. He uses the language of master with his own people. Okay? 
And then he tell and he says to them, go tell them Abdechai Yaakov. And what I want to show you is that if you look at the story, like what do you think changed between when he like what what, what he what he's telling his his workers, that's really what he actually thinks, right? Because he's not he doesn't have to hide anything with them. He's telling them what he actually thinks, how he sees it. And in the first one, he sees it as Asaph is actually my master, and therefore you should tell him that I'm his servant. But in the second one, he says you're tell like like tell Asaph my brother. He sees him as his brother, and then says, but tell him that I'm his servant. So what changed in between those two things? He starts preparing. Yeah, he starts preparing. There's a whole bunch of things that he does in preparation, right? So he gets he, he basically gets he gets it rolling. He starts to, to tell all his workers, set up this, set up that, get all the gifts together. We're going to set up all these different kinds of gifts. And then he also splits up the camp and decides to make it like, okay, so we're going to have a camp of family and a camp of maybe other things. And then it's going to also be, and he also, he also does tefillah. He starts talking to Hashem and says, you said you're going to protect me. He goes through all these pieces. And that seems to sort of, and, and that seems to basically, I mean, all that is a response to earlier when it says that he's very scared. He's like terrified and he feels Vayetzer means like he's constricted by what's happening. So his response is to basically go through all these pieces. And then as that evolves, what he gets to is now he actually calls Aesop his brother, Achi. And then he, but he, he says just, you're going to play this game. You're going to tell him that I'm his servant to try to make sure to get that across. And I want to just tell you guys in general, there's another place where Yaakov does something very similar. In Parshas Vayete, when he first shows up and meets Rachel by the well, so he says he says he, he's introducing himself to Rachel and says, um, "Tell he says to her, Achi Achi Achi, what's the language? Um, Achi Achi Ata. Um, no, he says no. Ki ven rivkahu, ki Achi Aviyahu, ki ven rivkahu. That's a language. He's the brother of her father. And he's also a son of Rivka. That's what he says there. And it's a strange language because you know he's not actually loving the brothers. So why would he say that?" So the Medrash picks up on that and says, well, whenever someone says that, you're, that they're your brother, so what, a, what an ach always is, it's someone who you have some kind of kinship with. You're similar in some way. So well, what's the kinship that Yaakov has with Laban? So there's two possibilities, the Medrash says. Kinship option number one is that he's going to be his actual family. It's like, we're going to be like family, like brothers with each other. I'll be with you, I'll help you, I'll work with you, I'll help you deal with your, your, um, you know, your merchandise, whatever, with your uh, economic situation. Which is an interesting question of like in the end, Lavan decides he offers to pay him, so it's kind of a weird thing that's going on there. That's when the story starts to to escalate there. Um, but the other option the measure says is that I'll be like your ach in terms of how you treat me. Like if you're going to scam me, I will scam you first, and I'll be your ach baramaut, which means like I'll be just just our kinship will be how I how I take advantage of you as you take advantage of me. So what I want to argue to you is it's also going on here. There was happening at this point in the story is that Yaakov gets it together and actually starts with the theme, what you call the showdown. That's what the theme of this whole paragraph is. Everything is, that's going on here is this is this buildup where Yaakov is actually slowly, kind of if you look at Asaph as like the aggressor, and Yaakov is like starts off very very low down where he's basically actually sees Asaph as Adoni. He plugs himself into Hashem and also starts to activate his defense system and slowly starts to move up 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 in that process. And so, and that's basically what you're seeing with this, with these examples, with the, so far what we're saying here. So when he when he actually calls Asaph Achi, so it's a little bit of an, of an of an anomaly too, because it's like, well, he's terrified of Asaph, he's having a problem with Asaph, and he's now trying to defend against that in some way. So that is, that's why I'm bringing the measures from Baetzi to sort of show, well, Yaakov sees it in terms of one or the other. There's two options here: either Asaph will be his actual brother, they'll be like family, and that's what he's hoping. Which is, you see that in the Medrash and Rashi quotes a bunch of Midrashim that talk about that, or it'll end up being like, no, I have to be like a, 
an aggressor against you and be strong enough to fight you off. And so those are the two options of how Yaakov kind of views that. Yes, yes. And you're going to see that that starts to play out, that, that exact same like versus situation. Whereas with, but with the brachos, you'll notice that Yaakov never actually had a direct confrontation with Esau. Which is very striking if you think about that, right? Like Yaakov did everything behind his back and then it comes out, Yitzchak knows what happened, Esau knows what happened, but the Torah never tells you that there's like a direct confrontation. And Yaakov just runs away. He literally turns tail, shows him his back and runs off. And here, you're going to see instead, this is going to be everything about Yaakov's facing Esau directly. You might even say that this is called Piniel. <laughs> My face is going to be literally facing towards L, and so that's what you see is as the story escalates, which is in case you ever wondered why in the middle of this long story is there this random fight with this nameless person that Yaakov suddenly grapples with in the middle of the night, they're crossing this river, and like it's just this very, very ambiguous story. And the Medrash goes crazy with the story. It starts telling you, well, what's happening is, and because the text says that it's like there's this Elohim, and it's like, and, and you fall with Elohim, and like you were able to succeed. And like if you actually read, and again, I, I don't we can read through every word now and just feel bad taking all the time just to do the reading, which is why it's also always good to have everybody read beforehand. But like if you actually look at the theme of that story, so the reason why the Medrash, the Medrash builds out this whole picture, it's like, well, what happened here? There's this force that is actually backing Asav. Asav is some kind of like, we're talking about what that means in a second. Like this, he has this force behind him, and then Yaakov is kind of like he's slowly rising in the earlier parts of the story, and then he gets to a place where now he actually is kind of prepared to do battle with Asaph's force directly, and he's grappling with that force in the middle of the night, and then like and, and that force is like apparently it's like an actual person, and there's like this back and forth between them, and then like it hits him in some kind of vulnerable spot, and he's like struggling with that, and that's why it says the language it says like he says. Um, like he literally calls it Peniel, and then and then and then it says after that um, everybody calls the place Penuel, which means like basically Peniel means my face is now towards L. That's why the Medrash basically describes it as like well because what happened was Yaakov encountered a very intense power and faced it. I just want to show you one other thing which is also related to that, which is if you look a little earlier. So. After Yaakov organizes all of these gifts that he's sending to Esav, so he says, in Pasuk Chafalif, So the Mincha kind of passes in front of him, and he decides he's going to sleep that night in the camp. Unclear what that means, Amachana. Like, it sounds like maybe he means in the camp with his family, because we have two camps right now. But he basically, there's a few ambiguous things here. Like, for example, you ever wonder, like, why did Yaakov decide he wants to cross the river in the middle of the night? It's like a huge problem. <laughs> Doesn't say any reason for that. Like, just this random, in the middle of the night, he decided he's doing that. I don't have an answer for that question. Just putting that out there as, like, a pretty big kasha. It's a weird weird thing in the story. But right before that, the part I just read, Batavor Mincha Al-Panav. So, look at that, look at those words, Al-Panav. What do you think that means? That the, the, the Mincha, all those gifts, are now passing in front of his face. What do you think that means? Why does it tell us that? It's very random information to tell us. Like, what's the imagery there? Like, he's standing there. And all these herds, literally herds of animals, are passing in front of his face. Why is it telling us that? Well, it becomes like a test, it seems like. Like a test? More? I'll, just, I'll also just mention, in case you're not familiar with this, but if you look in um, the end of Parshish Noach, so there's a famous line there where it talks about how, um, how um, Terach's oldest son, Haran, dies. So the, way, and the language it uses is... Um, he dies on the face of Terach, his father. And you know what the Medrash says about that. Right? Chazal read this line, Al Pene Terach Aviv, and they say, well, what is that talking about? 
when, it, when the, the child died in the face of his father, Ur Kasdim is like a weird phrase also, like the, in the fires of Kasdim. So they make this whole story. That's where the furnace measure comes from, which is that Haran was thrown into the furnace in front of Terach and was killed in this giant furnace, right? So, the, and, uh, and the Medrash gets that from the Ur Kasdim and Al Panay, because Al Panay means in the face of, and the, the, the problem here is that like to have, a, to have a child die before a father is like this concept of like in the face of, it's like right in your face. So what's in your face mean? When it says here that the, that the Mincha is over um, Al Panav, so the Medrash reads this also and is, and is like, oh, well, what's this talking about, Al Panav? It says that this, this is because Yaakov was getting increasingly infuriated by what was going on because as every aid there passes in front of him, he was giving up his, his yeah, money. Yeah, like, exactly. I'm giving up my money for he's everything. watching all his property basically like go to into this situation. And but and remember, Yaakov doesn't even know that it's going to help. He does not know the end of the story. So it's not like he planned to do this. He like you know the measure says that Yaakov had three things. He gave he did tefillah, he gave a doron, and what was the third thing? Oh, and he does like a strategy for war by splitting up the machanos. So those are his three approaches to solving this problem. But he doesn't know the doron means the gifts. So he doesn't know what's actually going to happen with these gifts, but he's like, well, I'm going to, first of all, I'm going to make sure to do it strategically smart. It'll be like a wave of animals, and then there'll be a pause, and then another wave of animals, and then there'll be another pause, and another wave of animals, and then another pause, every group separately. Because that, if you do it all at once, it's like one big burst of euphoria. Wow, I got a gift, but then it's like, eh, I don't know if it's really enough. If you do a wave, then an hour wave, there's another one, you're like, oh, wow, look at all these things, and again and again. So he himself is actually experiencing that, and he's, he's like, it's, yeah, he's, he's, he's on the he's other also, end of that. Yeah. He also experienced, I mean, yeah, so it's, it's, like it's, it's all part of the same thing. Right, exactly. Like and you're going to see that's going to play out even more in a second. So so he's like, it's Al, so the mentor says he was he was infuriated by this problem. That's what Alpanav refers, refers to. He wasn't just like, okay, I did, I'm going to turn around and walk away. He's like watching this happen. It's like in his face, and that means that. So that basically is the backdrop. All that is the backdrop for the next story, which is, or for the next section of the story, which is the battle with this force. So the way that the battle plays out, maybe you're familiar with, um, it says that Yaakov, Actually, uh, he, he brought everything across. First, he brings the family over. Then he brings the stuff over. And then he leaves. He forgets like these, or forgot, or left behind some small containers that he left behind on the other side. And so he goes back to get them. And when he goes back, that's what the Medrash says. The Medrash doesn't, the text doesn't say that. It just says he brought everything over. And then he got stuck on his own. He was alone on the other side of the river. And then he gets into this fight. And the Medrash says, well, how did that happen? Why would he be alone on the other side of the river? Why would he go back? So he left a couple of small things. He didn't need anybody else to come with him because they were small. So therefore, he's alone. But he actually did have a couple of small things back there. The Medrash is like, well, because why would that? Why is that important? Because tzaddikim, so people who are who are essentially in alignment with reality, so they know where everything comes from, and so even little things matter to them. So he went back to get those little things, and then he got stuck with this fighting off this force. Okay, so that's like that's that's this weird story, which we're going to explain that story in one second. So basically, as the as the story continues and progresses, there's a lot of other parts here that are super important, but. As you kind of follow, is just one, 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 again, every sentence here really adds a lot of detail to the story. But one thing I just want to show you guys just before we kind of try to tie a bunch of these things together. So there's this classic conversation I'm sure you guys have heard before. It's probably been pointed out to you. It's a, a very normalized Tvar Torah type of thing people talk about. When Yaakov and Esav are talking about this amount of stuff that they each have, they use very different language. So what, is ya- what language does Esav use? Leish li rav. So that's in Pasuk Tess, if you look there. So it's, um, they're having this conversation about all the different stuff. And Esav just saw all of Yaakov's wives and all his children. 
And then it says, he says, who are all these people? And, and, and Yaakov gives him the very self-diminishing response. Well, I have so much already, so you can have whatever you have. Then he says, okay, so he basically responds to him. Um, and then he says, these, these are the, the, the very um, memorable words. Take my bracha, right? Like, it's a weird language, right? Really should have said kachna es minchasi, the minchas that I sent you, but he doesn't say that. He says kachna es birchasi. This is one of many examples where you see Yaakov is really pushing it, trying to be like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm not do anything to you. Like, there's no problem here. Uh, and then he says, and he keeps pressing him. He says, so he takes it. And so there, the the yeshli rav is the yeshli kol is one of those famous dvar Torahs. Esav it says yeshli rav. I have so much. Yaakov says yeshli kol. I have everything. And so there's like some kind of you know materialism uh, dvar Torah about that. How materialism is bad and you shouldn't have materialism. And Yaakov is not materialistic. So that's a classic dvar Torah. I just want to point out it's very bizarre because if you look at twenty psukim earlier, why did Yaakov cross the river by himself? Stuff. So he went to get the last of his stuff, the little things. Well, the little things don't matter. Don't sweat the small stuff. He sweated the small stuff in tr- like very in- intensely to the point where now he's actually trapped in like a life-threatening situation just to get a bunch of Tupperware containers. Like it's a little bit of a crazy thing. And then here we have this thing, well, is it Yeshli Rav or Yeshli Kol? Like Yaakov says Yeshli Kol, I have everything, but like do you really have everything? Is this a refer- re- uh, reference to the bracha that he took? So yeah. it definitely is, that- is echoing that, and it sounds like that. So It's almost like he's... Sticking taste like it's yeah. almost like a it, well. Like, they should rob me like isn't that part of the bracha that Yitzchak gave to Rav Yavot Seir? Right, I never even thought of that. It's interesting. Call is like he basically said like he took everything. Right, we should, um, we should look that up. So I just Rav Yavot Seir. I wonder if that's part of that. Yeah, it's actually interesting because Rav doesn't really mean older. It, like that's one of the weird things about that that statement. It's like Rav Yavot Seir doesn't make so much sense. That's the, well, that's the, it's, first of all, the Rav Yavotzi here is the bracha with, um, with Ritka. It's the first bracha. Yeah, that's the first bracha with Ritka. When Ritka goes, when she's still pregnant, and then they tell her, Rav Yavotzi which is, which is like a bizarre thing, because it doesn't say, like, the older one will obey the Tzayir. It says the Rav, which is like, Rav could mean, like, massive or strong big, has a lot, like, it's a weird word to even use there, so, okay, but I just want to, I want to just sort of show you where all this is going, um, and this sort of goes to, like, a much larger thematic question, which is, there's this famous problem that people like to ask a lot, definitely in the, um, we'll call it, like, just the, the larger communities where there's, like, questions like, well, you guys probably have heard that Chazal really, and all these Midrashim and Gemaras and all these places, they really like to bash Esav, Esav gets a very bad reputation from Chazal. If you actually read the stories, so it doesn't seem like there's really so much going on here that's really so bad. I just want to draw your attention to a couple of funny things just as, a, as an aside here. Um, if you actually look towards the end of this whole section, the whole Parsha, when it starts telling you about like a lot of different family interactions in, in Asa's family. So just for example, um, you'll notice that there's a lot of repeating names. If you look in, um, this is now in Perak, Lamed Vav. So when it starts telling you the Tolos of Asa, he's Edom. And then it starts telling you he has these different wives. They have very different names now than they had when he first married them, incidentally. Um, and, for example, just one, one wild example here. You have, I'll give two examples, actually. One is you have Aholibama, Yaldaes, Yeush, Ves, Yalam, Ves, Korach. That's Pasuk Hei. Aholibama has these kids, Yeush, Yalam, Korach. And these are Bnei Esav, Asher Yodul, Beres, Kanan. So Aholibama has these three kids, one of whom is named Korach. If you look a little later on, 
So it tells you um, the kids of Eliphaz. So Eliphaz has a bunch of kids. And all his kids, are they become what's called alufim. Alufim means to be like a leader, tribe leader, whatever, group leader. And one of the kids Eliphaz has, his name is Korach. Um, it never says that he has a kid named Korach, though. It just says that one of the, it says, when it, when it lists off the alufim that are sons of Eliphaz, so Korach, who was earlier, was a son of a holy Bama, who's Esau's wife, now is listed as a son of Eliphaz, and there is no Korach listed as a son of a holy Bama over there. So the question is, why is that? So the manager says, well, that's very obviously why. The reason is because Eliphaz was Baal Holy Bama. He, he slept with his own, his own mother. His own mother? No, sorry. He slept with his dad's other wife and then got her pregnant with, the, with Korach. So Korach is actually a child of Holy Bama and Eliphaz. And then and a second example of that is if you look at um, who is Eliphaz is. Anyone know who offhand Eliphaz is? Felagesh was, what her name was listed here. You heard of that? Timna. Her name is Timna. Yeah. So you know, you know who Timna's dad is. So it tells you who it tells you it tells you some things about Timna. So if you look towards where is that? That guy. That guy's dad. I think it is. Um, let's see. Sorry. Bnei Lotan Chori Vehimam Vachos Lotan Timna. So Lotan is Timna's brother, it says. And who is Lotan? Lotan is the son of Seira Hori. That's, that's, um, so Timna is, so Timna is the sister of Lotan. Lotan is the son of Seira Hori. So the question is, well then, who is, who's Timna's dad? So, the, so here, the text doesn't really tell you who her dad is, it just says she's the sister of Lotan. But in Divrei Ayamim, Rashi quotes this, in Divrei Ayamim, Timna is listed as Eliphaz's daughter. Because Eliphaz slept with Seir's wife and got her pregnant with Timna, and then Timna ends up being Eliphaz's Pilagesh. Also here, there's there's a, there's a yes, there's a number of other ones. If you just and only by the way, like I first noticed this just by reading these these things. I'm reading these, I never even noticed it. I didn't see it in Rashi. I'm reading the stories here. And a bunch of years ago, I was like, who are all these names? Like, it's if you actually track out the names. Like, they just switch around. Like, different ones have different parents, different times. Like, there's a few... There's, that's not all of them. There's more. And these families start to intermingle. Asaph's family and, Se and Seir's family. And it's like, that's just one example of... Just in the text, where Chazal get these things about what Asaph did and what Asaph's family was like and what these, these kinds of people are. Because forget the... Like, just, just, the, just the concept of there being boundaries and how these things are supposed to be structured was completely not, you know, a, a theme for, this, for these different families that are now intermarrying. So, but one other piece to add to that mix, which is Asa, the actual name Asa, comes from the word Asui. Asui means to be done, means you are, that is a complete work. And I just want to give you guys like the, the background of what's going on in the whole story that we're really focusing on. This is just, this was just kind of like little add-ins just to sort of show you where Chazal are coming from. There's a bunch of, of other ones too, it's not all of them at all, but... The word Asav, when Asav at first comes comes into existence in Parshas Toldos, so you guys are probably familiar. How he was he was um, he had very red skin, he had a lot of hair. The Medrash describes how he was basically like he looked like he was much older than he actually was already from a very young age. And Yaakov was like a regular child. And the Medrash picks out all of that from the word Asav because Asav literally means to be done. You are complete. And so thematically, there's oh another add-in just to point out is that like we're still right now in what's called the Galus of Edom. We're currently experiencing whatever Edom is. Asaph is called Edom, so he's literally known as Red. So, hey, big Red, like that. Yeah, that's basically what he was. So, like, we're still in that phase right now. So I just want to sort of show you what this battle was 
and then we can pretty much end with that, um, which is this whole story, when you talk about the showdown between Yaakov and Esav, so this whole, like every detail of it kind of revolves around the actual showdown between Yaakov and this thing that's called some kind of malach, some kind of angel, or what's called in Chazal, Saro Shel Esav, like literally the force that's behind Esav. Whatever Esav's about, he has this force behind him that sort of like expresses that. So just to sort of show what that is, so the concept of being done, of being Esav, in contrast to what it means to be Yaakov, so to be Yaakov basically means that you are operating as, we can call it like, as opposed to being complete and just sort of done, so you actually have this, this um, what we call like, like we'll, we'll call it process. Process means that instead of being done, you're constantly getting further. There's always more. So the question, of course, is like, well, if you're always getting more, that also sounds kind of like yesh li rav. Like, I always want there to be, I have, I have so much, I'm always trying to get more. And then you, if you look at, this, at the Pachim Ketanim story, also there, what does that mean, that he was interested in getting these small containers? So if you look at the Medrash's language itself, about what the small containers were about, so it says to you, Tzadikim understand what exactly every little thing is that they get, that everything comes from their effort and from Hashem. In other words, people who are, again, to be a tzaddik means to see things the way that they are. You're what's called a realist, from the word tzodik, which means to be right. You are accurate. So what is an accurate perspective? An accurate perspective is that every single thing that comes into your space, especially if you're a person like Yaakov, who the way he saw it this way was because he came with zero and struggled for 20 years and slowly accumulated things over time. And so when you do it that way, so then you basically never forget where every single thing comes from, and then you don't just blow things off. You're not just like, oh, well, that's unimportant. I have so much, I don't need that. He doesn't think I have so much, I don't need that. He thinks every single thing is part of what I got from Hashem and from my own efforts in the world. And like each, each one of those things represents like my slow climb from zero to whatever it is that I'm at now. And so when you see the depth of that, it's not about quantity. It's about understanding the source of all the things that you have. Think about what Yaakov really is. I mean, that's that, the whole. When we talk about the concept of there being more, the concept of process of being constantly evolving, as opposed to Asa, who's this more static. He's already complete. So what that's really looking at, you know, we talk about the the materialistic versus the not materialistic. So it's not that Asa is materialistic. It's that if you relate to the things that you have purely from a quantitative level, in other words, I just have a lot of things, and now I'm going to have even more things. So you might feel like, oh, look, I'm growing. There's more and more and more. I'm in process. But actually, it's just counterfeit process because you think you're getting more, but actually you're just getting more things. But in terms of the underlying elements of reality, what's kind of, you can call that, if you wanted to sort of look at the world as there's what you see, which is like one layer, and you can, you can look at the opposite side of reality, which is the things that are intangible that you can't see. In other words, what everything kind of means. So if you, have a, if you have a million dollars, or you have a lot of cars, or whatever, you have a lot of things, but none of those things necessarily will mean anything in terms of an intangible side of your life. So what we're talking about here is what Yaakov is, is a person who has all of that. He has the, he actually, he actually accumulated physical things, lots of things that are measurable and quantifiable, and then at the same time, he has this intangible side that sees where all these things came from, what they all mean, how they're all part of a process. That's his original statement to Hashem. In Parsh Vayete was, well, if you, if you take care of me, whatever I get from you, I will give you back some of that to show that I understand where that all came from. And then basically the ace of contrast to that is, well, I just have a lot, 
and like, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't really have anything that's in terms of the intangible depth and meaning of reality. I just have the more surface level. What, it, what there is is what there is, and that's it. Which, by the way, Asaph's grandson, Amalek, Elipas' his child, so that's his whole life. It's about that. Amalek's theme, the way the Medrash describes it, and we can see it, you can see it in the text also, their theme basically was there is nothing else. Like, or rather, the things that are intangible don't matter. They're outside. We don't care about them. We only want, very in an intense way, only what you see is what you get. And even if there is something else, we don't care. Which is why people say that Hitler was a Malik, because that was actually a philosophy that he espoused, which was that, well, you know, we determine your value based on your externalities, not anything deeper than that. So the battle here essentially is actually revolving around this battle between Yaakov and this other character here, because you could think of it, this character, as if like he's Yaakov's nemesis, because what is the nemesis? It's like, well, okay, you're going back for little containers. It's like the ultimate expression of the possibility maybe you're actually on the wrong side. Like you're on, you're, you're on the other side of the river now. What are you doing? Like you're going back to get small containers. Why are you doing that? Is it because you got confused and now think that you have to have a lot of things and I don't want to leave back anything because I want to have a lot of things? Or do you understand the depth of what these things are and that every single thing matters because every single thing took sacrifice and effort and connection and it's all part of all of the depth and meaning of your life? So Yaakov goes back, and that's actually the battle that's described. It's between him and what Asaph is about. And that's why this story revolves around that, because the whole story is really about Yaakov starts off like, okay, well, Asaph is like very, very powerful. Because look, there's so much, there's so many, there's, there's so much of this, of stuff in the world, and the Asaph dynamic is very, very strong. And it's like Asaph has a lot of power as a person, and that's Asaph always had a lot of power. Yaakov was this person who was largely relative to Asaph, struggling to even keep up with him and get ahead at all. And there's a very intense competitive dynamic between them, which is already a different story. What's going on in Parsha's told us, like, why are they in competition and what Yitzchak had to do with that. But the point here is that, like, Yaakov slowly had to, like, get the strength to even, you know, op operate opposite Esav in that kind of way. And the story basically plays out along those lines. And then it kind of, it kind of culminates in that Devar Torah line, which is that when, when Esav says, Yesh li Rav, and Yaakov says, Yesh li Kol, so Yaakov is actually saying, like, I have everything. It's not, it doesn't matter how many things I have in terms of actual items, because the quantity is not all that matters. It's the quantity with the quality underneath it. The intangible side has to be present underneath the tangible side. But you can't have, like, if you just have the tangible side, then you're going to say things like, Yesh li Rav. And you're going to watch that, you know, for us in our, in our current learning, so, you know, it's, it's, it's important to see that pattern or whatever, but, like, realize that when you read through all the stories, this is not just here, and it's not just in the sentences that I showed you. This is a theme, and it's constantly threading its way through all this because Yaakov's struggle is constantly to basically make a decision, well, am I an A-sub type person, and I'm a Yeshli Kol type person, which is what Yisrael is kind of about that also, the name Yisrael, or am I more of a Yaakov person where I don't have so many things, and Yaakov's struggle is to be like, okay, I can have a lot of things and have a lot of depth and constantly keep those things operating in harmony and in tandem, not just in harmony, in parallel, in tandem. And so that's why, you know, when I made fun of the materialistic approach before, because it doesn't do it justice at all, because no one's saying that you can't have stuff. But what we are saying constantly is that you can't have stuff and that's it. If you don't have a counterbalancing force of depth and intangible connection underneath that stuff, what that stuff means... In, a, in, a, in an equally powerful way, then you run into problems, and you run into ace of problems, which is, and I, and I would like to make an argument, that's why there is this approach today that says that America is like Edom, because it's still in Gullus Edom, and the reason is because the pull of this context is very much in that direction. We all, anyone who's in this country feels that way, because you feel like there's a lot, and again, it doesn't mean that people in this country 
are materialistic, that we are all too materialistic. And that's not anything like that. There's a big, big, big trend like that. After Black Friday, there was all these guilt articles about, wow, America, materialism, consumerism. Like, I'm not saying that at all. I think that it's 100% fine to go and buy lots of things. But the problem is when you don't have a counterbalancing intensity about also learning a lot of Torah and getting a lot of depth and a lot of Hashem. And so it's totally fine to take advantage of sales on Friday if you're learning Parshas Vayetze on Shabbos or whatever it was. Parshas told us. Um, yeah, I think it was told us. Um, so, and if you do those things, if you, if you, make, if you make Black Shabbos happen, that you're learning Parshas told us at a very high level in depth, and, that's what you, and you're, not, you're not thinking the whole time about how you're excited for the new things that you bought, so then you're counterbalancing the two things. And it's totally fine to have Yeshli call with lots of lots and lots and lots of these different kinds of things here. Because that's exactly the battle of Yaakov. It's that you can you can be Yaakov and have both of those things, but you have to understand the battle of that. If you don't know that battle, then you're like, okay, like it's very power. Like I'm kind of I have things. Sometimes I learn because I'm supposed to learn, and it's you don't understand that you're at war. Like this, you're literally at war all the time with this problem. Yeah. This is struggle even within like community. To me it sounds like it's so describing like describing the beginning, I mean, just the idea of how to approach Torah. It sounds like the well, sure, of course, on the surface level or on yeah. a deeper level. So yes, hundred percent. Like well, now on you're making a very like distinct contrast between materialism, but it sounds like it could be even within Torah that that like almost like Asim is like the surface approach of like. Well, that's that's the Torah. irony. What I, that's what's called El Bona Shel Torah. It's like the insult of Torah. What I was really doing now was just sort of showing how. I'm showing what Asav is and the battle that we have with Asav. And even the battle with Asav, there's more depth to it because the deeper side of this whole discussion is, well, what exactly is the relationship between the tangible world and the intangible reality that's behind it? In other words, how do we relate the things that we have to Hashem? And like, like just to point this out, this story at a much deeper level is talking about how Hashem actually translates himself into all physical things. So like everything is actually from Hashem in a very deep sense. All physical reality is an expression of Hashem's being in the world, almost like in a concentrated form. So when you see that, so every little thing that you have, which Yaakov experienced that, actually is like containing Hashem's self, which is one of the reasons why Chazal say the Pachim Ketanim concept, little containers is a reference to the Kabbalah concept that like everything in reality are containers of Hashem's being. So if you could just open that and unlock Hashem's presence in all things, you would see that this battle would end immediately because it's like, well, everything that we have around us, we never can make a mistake in thinking that it's just a container. You always feel you always feel Hashem's presence coming through it. But in terms of what you're saying, so what I was doing was just trying to show the ace of side of the battle. But in terms of understanding it in terms of Torah, yeah, what's called El Bona Shel Torah means the insult of Torah. That there is an insult to the Torah now. Because not just now, for in many, many time periods it was like that, where when we don't understand the war, so then it ends up turning into a situation where we're kind of chill about the actual Torah itself. And we're like, yeah, well, we'll learn some Torah, but like we're also, we have things that we really care about. And that's understandable because if we don't know the Torah well, so we don't see it in a deep way, then it's hard to be pulled towards that. Whereas if you have, you know, if you're, if you're in finance or law or any other kind of job, so you, there's so much complexity to immerse yourself in it. But if you're going to immerse yourself in that, there has to be a parallel immersion in the Torah. And the goal of this, yes, is to sort of show that that is possible. Not just possible, it's like super awesome to do it. Because and we just did a small things here. If you actually know, if we know the story really well, then this would have already clicked in a million other parts and be like, oh, this goes with that, that goes here, this fits with that. So this this is like you know it is it is definitely the same dialogue as that, but just that's the other side of it. I had to sort of realize that there's an insult to the Torah when we don't keep up the that side of things. But the reason for that is because all the Torah is is a map of the intangible reality that we're talking about here, and even the tangible reality too. 
So when we talk about learning the Torah at a deep level, so we mean, well, if there is a whole array of truth behind what you can see and measure, and not and just not things themselves are actually expressions of this very, very deep layering of things that are intangible and we'll call invisible, or whatever the word is for that, and the Torah maps all those out, so of course learning this in depth is going to naturally be the cure or the balancing for the ace of side of things, because all this is is showing you, it's, it's, not, it's not that the Torah is a thing, the Torah is describing reality. So learning Torah is not like just like a random activity we have to do. It's like it's literally absorbing clarity and perspective on what it is that we're in, in this whole context. So that's like a really important, deep thing that needs to be constantly understood. It can't just be like, well, I learned some, that's exactly the same, the same breakdown of Shnaya Mikra versus actual learning. So that's basically the framework. Those are the two sides. And I think that, you know, th those things... There's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of layers. What it means to actually be Yaakov and Yisrael and Yaakov's constant moving back and forth between those two names is part of the same dialogue, as we're saying now. And in terms of the actual ace of character, this all, like I said, it threads back and forth to earlier and later partios. And ya the Yaakov character gets more and more and more evolved in this problem as this parsha and the next partios go on. And you see that again and again when he's dealing with Paro, like in, you know later on in the stories with Yosef, and even the story with Dina, there's, you'll see these threads playing out again over and over. Okay. There are times where he's called Israel and Yaakov. Yes. As he, as he moves forward, whereas with, right. with Avram, went from Avram, and then to Avram, and he was right. called. Because Avram, Avram was basically set up to be Avamon Goyim. Like, once he got to a certain point, Avram had enough. It's like it's like being, like, um, a great dad, and then, like, having such a big heart that you can also include, like, all of your kids' friends as, like, you could watch out for them and care about them in that kind of way. Avram loved everyone like that. So that was like his way, and it was and it was his struggle too, because it actually caused problems, like with Yishmael, like that he that these his kids didn't have enough of their own space. But with Yaakov, Yaakov's struggle is like very different. Yaakov's struggle is what we call struggle with Emes, which is basically like he struggles to actually be to know when to share and when to hold back, and like that's his problem constantly. He's either, he goes too far, he lies, he go, doesn't say enough. Like in the Dina story, in the next part, he literally just like says nothing. And his kids are like, what are you doing? You're not like you're literally allowing this to happen. And that's why they, they counterbalance that and overreact because of that, which is a very intense result in that. So that's Yaakov is like, he's all over the map because of that. Whereas Avram was very over the he was Avram was extreme on the sharing himself side, what we call Chesed, in an unhealthy way also a lot of the time. Yitzhak was extreme the other way, and Yaakov is constantly oscillating between those two.